I love this time of year. When you and I are in the home stretch preparing our hearts for the birth of a baby in Bethlehem, it really is a wonderful time. But it also becomes kind of a stressful time. Just because we're all so busy, there is so much to do, from the decorating to the parties to the present, you name it. And I know that's the way life is here at the church. I mean, right now we've been working on so many things. Last night was Sounds of Christmas on Channel 4, and it was a great evening. We worked so hard to produce that. But we've also been having an all-church Christmas party last Sunday night in Edmond, all-church Christmas party this week downtown. We had our concert with Kristen Chenoweth and Esther Women. We're winding up doing all of our um, still coffee with Bob's and we're getting ready for Christmas Eve. Candlelight service that has to be done early to get it to the TV station. You name it, there's so much going on. And what I found is there's little signs that sometimes maybe we can get to be doing too much. And if we're not careful, we forget really what's most important. I know it's happened to me recently a few times. I, I was at home and I was trying to work on, on a sermon and I was trying to get some material for coffee with Bob and, and I just needed a cup of coffee, something to keep me going. And I, I ran into the kitchen. We have a, a Keurig, got out a K-cup, put it in, started it. I didn't have time to stand there while it made the cup of coffee. I ran back to the table so I could work while it was making. I could hear it. And so when it was through, I went back into the kitchen when I got back into the kitchen, it was done, but I didn't see my cup of coffee. And I just started thinking, well, did I already pick it up? I looked for a little while and suddenly I realized I had made a cup of coffee. I just forgot to get out the cup. It had all run into the reservoir there in the coffee pot. Thank goodness it did not run all over the counter, but I would made the cup, just forgot the cup. It had been a couple days before, I was sitting at that same place, working on the Christmas Eve candlelight service, working on the sermons, working on the old church Christmas party, and Marcia came in and, and she said, I need you to sign some checks here, I, I need to go make some deposits. I'd been working on a, a wonderful story about Walt Disney. I was engrossed in what I was doing. She gave me the checks and I endorsed them. And as I was endorsing the check and I came signing the name, I looked at the very end of it and I had signed the name Walt Disney. <laughs> I looked at the check and I thought, hmm, I think it needs a co-signer. So I signed Robert E. Long and I gave it to Marsh and said, good luck. <laughs> I don't know if they'll cash that check, signed by Walt Disney and Robert E. Long or not. They did. <laughs> now, you, know, you can tell when you may be going a little too fast in too many directions all at the same time. I have to say, the one thing I have done is I've maintained what I promised I would do and I've asked you to do, and that is your daily devotional life. We have not missed every morning going into our living room, sitting there. We read the devotional guide. We light our Advent candles that everyone, I hope, has. We look at our nativity scene. We sit quietly in our time of prayer. And I think it's been the one thing that's helped to keep me grounded in the midst of the exciting acceleration as we move towards Christmas 
But it's so important. It's so important to keep the focus because it's the experience of the birth of Christ that is going to help us write the end of our story. The story I'd worked on with Walt Disney was the fact when Walt Disney was eight years old, his father Elias moved the family to Kansas City, Missouri. His older brother Roy was 10. Elias was a really hard, harsh man. And one of the first things he did when he got there was he went out and he bought a paper route of a thousand deliveries. Most people, if they had a paper route for a thousand deliveries, they'd get a wagon and a horse. But not Elias. I mean, he had two sons, eight and ten. So they had to get up every morning at 3.30 to roll a thousand papers and then go deliver them. And when it snowed in the wintertime and it was way steep, you had to be careful to get the paper on the porch and not let it get wet. You had to do it in a timely way. You had to get home, have breakfast, then go to school. But then they got out of school 30 minutes early because they had to do the evening edition. They came home. They rolled another 1,000 papers. They had to go and deliver those. They got those done, and they came home and had dinner. Then they went to bed, and then they got up, and they did it all over again the next day. And they did it seven days a week. It was brutal. Roy and Walt finally had enough. Several years had gone by, and they ran away from home. It had been so hard. They ran away from home, and it was years later as an adult, Walt was reflecting on his childhood. And I want to read you what he said. There was a time in my life that I thought about that eight-year-old boy every day. I thought about him every day, but I finally decided I didn't like that story. So I decided I love my life. My life is a miracle. I love my dad. He did the best he could. I decided I was not going to let the pain of my past determine the end of my story. Because everybody has a sad story to tell. Everybody has pain. But you have to be careful you don't let your pain determine the end of your story. Walt Disney went on to create the happiest place on earth. I'm not going to let the pain determine the end of my story. You know, you and I have lived through a challenge this last two years. There has been pain and grief. You know, the, the pandemic, everybody's lived through it in a different way. For some, it may not have been a big deal at all. For many, it brought about isolation. For many, it brought about grief. You know, I think of all the wonderful people in this family of faith who died and we couldn't get together for a funeral. We couldn't visit them in a hospital. We couldn't gather with families. So many people I don't get to see finally at Christmas. I know many families who have lost a loved one, whether to COVID or other things. Everybody's lived in a different way and we're coming through this pandemic and really part of the question is, how's it going to determine your story? We've lived with the isolation. We've lived with fear. 
You know, it's Philip Brooks who had been the pastor there at Holy Trinity Church and in Philadelphia for four years during the Civil War. And then he was there to do the funeral of Abraham Lincoln. He was only 30 years old. And he found himself crushed physically, emotionally, spiritually. He was empty, dry. And that's when he decided to go to the Holy Land. And he was there on Christmas Eve. And he went to Bethlehem. And he walked the streets of Bethlehem. And that was the night that he felt the presence of God. It was like Christ being born in his life. He just felt the presence of God. It was a spiritual experience. And in that experience, there was this renewal of energy, a renewal of a passion for life, a renewal of meaning. It was exactly the gift of Christmas. And that's why he came back and he would ultimately write the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, we're singing a verse of it every week as we light our Advent candles. And this week we sang the third verse, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. No ear may hear His coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive Him still, the dear Christ enters in. For Philip Brooks, it would not be all the pain and the suffering and the struggles that would determine the end of his story because of the gift of Christmas. This morning, I want us to continue on with the sermon series, The Hopes and Fears of All the Years. We've said we're going to confront our fears, our pain, and believe that we can find hope because of a baby born in Bethlehem. Remember, it is John who says, perfect love cast out fear. And that's what I want us to think about this morning is that gift of God's love in a baby and how that is going to enable us to confront our pain and our fear of a previous year. I love the story of Mary we looked at this morning. And you know, when you stop and think about Mary you really can come up with a story that's all about sadness and pain. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary. Hail, O favored one, you have found favor with God. You're going to conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, for Mary, that moment would change her life forever and cause great problems. We looked at this last week. Suddenly she is pregnant. We see what it did to her relationship with Joseph. He says, I want to get a divorce. They didn't get a divorce, but can you imagine about the little town of Nazareth? Oh, how the people would talk. She now had to journey to Bethlehem, nine months pregnant. They can find nowhere to stay. She gives birth in a cattle stall. They get word that Herod wants to kill the baby. They have to flee to Egypt. She comes back home and raises him. Some people love him. Others want to kill him. She sees what he has to go through, and in the end, she watches him be crucified. If you want to take Mary's life, you could say, 
really it was a life of great struggle and pain. But that's not how we think about Mary. We think about Mary and we think about joy. We think about love. And that's because you get to determine the end of the story, how it plays. Because of the gift of God's love, we don't have to let the pain and the sorrow determine the end of the story. That's what I want us to think about this morning. And I, I just want to share with you the two ideas. First, I like the words, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. Christmas is about receiving God's gift. The gift of his love in the form of a baby. You know, this last week... I, I felt it was an important week, December the 7th, the 80th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. I've talked a little bit about it to you each week. I think it's so important to remember. 80 years ago, I was visiting with a friend this past week and we were discussing, what if there hadn't been a Winston Churchill to rally England, to stand up to Hitler? Chamberlain wanted to to give it all up and, and sue for peace with, with Germany. We had a Churchill who said no. He led his country and then we get bombed. December the 7th, Churchill makes a trip immediately to the United States. He is here with FDR Christmas of 1941. Together on Christmas morning, they are singing O Little Town of Bethlehem, finding hope in a dark night. Now I think about what would your world, my world, be like if we had not had people rise up? You know, it's been said there were 16 million Americans fighting in World War II. 16 million. Today, there's 240,000 left. And so when they had the services at Pearl Harbor this week, they only had a few veterans there. All of them were 100 years old or older. Think about it. They were boys, 19, 20, 21, 22, when all this happened. So 80 years later, they're all 100 years old, the few who were left. And it was so powerful to see them there and to hear them reflect on that day. One of the sailors they were interviewing said, you know, I was walking down the street and someone said, thank you for your service. And I said, you were worth serving for. It really took me back. I've, I've never heard that. Thank you for your service. You were worth serving for. He didn't know those people. He didn't know their character or what their life was like. It was simply a statement. You're an American. You're a human being. It was worth sacrificing for you so we all could live in a sense of freedom. It was worth serving for. And that really left me to thinking. The 16 million who made the sacrifice so that you and I could be free? What a wonderful gift. We did not ask for. We did not deserve. It's given. And that's what Christmas is about. A gift that we did not ask for. We did not deserve. It is God's love that is freely given. 
sometimes at Christmas, I think you and I have a hard time accepting that. Because we look at our own lives and we think, am I worthy of God's love? Am I good enough to receive God's love? After what I've done, what I haven't done, when we look at our own lives, to say that God's love is for you? You know, I love when it says about Mary, you have found favor with God. She didn't ask for it. She didn't deserve it. She found favor with God. It was a gift that was given. Is it possible this year at Christmas you have found favor with God? Can you hear God say that to you? I was reading Brene Brown. She's a Christian writer. Many of you probably read her. She has a wonderful story about her children, about her daughter Ellen, her oldest daughter, Back when she was eight years, nine years old, she was in elementary school. And Renee said, you know, she was a real rule follower. So often the oldest is the rule follower, going to do it right. And that was her daughter. And she was actually nine years old before she was late to school one day, and she got a tardy. A tardy. Oh, my goodness. It was the end of the world. She had let down her family tarnished the family name. She had let down her teachers. She had let down her principles. She started sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and they could not comfort her. She had a tardy. They finally had to call Brene who came to the school to say, Honey, it's okay. Everybody is late sometime. You don't have to be perfect. It is all right. When you come home tonight, we're going to throw a party. We're going to call it a tardy party. <laughs> we are going to celebrate your first time being late to school and to know that we still love you. And it's like Ellen started getting it. Okay, I got it. I got it. She came home that night. They had a party. Okay, you are still loved. You're not perfect. Brene said, fast forward four days. It was Sunday morning. Sunday morning, they were all getting ready to go to church. And she was going, where is everybody? Aren't we ready? I don't want to be late for church. Well, Mom, Ellen said, uh, Charlie and Daddy, they'll be here in a second. A second? It's a 9 o'clock service, not a 9.05 service. Why can't we be there on time? We're always late. Well, Mom, is there anything happening that starts in the service that we can't miss? No, no, but I hate coming down the aisle when everybody else is watching us and we are the late, late and we're doing it week after week. She said, finally, it was my nine-year-old who broke into the smile and said, Mom, when we come home from church, I'm going to throw you a tardy party. <laughs> and Brene Brown made the observation. She said, you know, being perfect is not about helping your children be the very best they can be. Pushing them to be perfect really is trying to make them worry about what everybody else thinks. And perfectionism is contagious, but so is love. Perfectionism, she said, is really the antithesis of grace. When we are so concerned about being perfect, it's like we're trying to earn God's grace. I'm going to be good enough that people will love me that God will love me. 
And that's a free gift. You can't earn it by being perfect. You can't earn it by what you do. I love it. Thank you for your service. You were worth serving for. My gift to you. A baby is born in Bethlehem. Not because you earned it or deserve it. Because it was the gift of God's love. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. You have found favor with God. Secondly, no ear may hear His coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive Him still, the dear Christ enters in. Where meek souls will receive Him still. You know, the word meek is not a very popular word. Meek. I mean, if I said, you, you sure are meek. Would you think I'm giving you a compliment? I, I don't think so. You know, today, weak means, uh, uh, meek means you're weak, you're spineless, you're pliable. I mean, I was looking it up in the dictionary. That's what it's going to mean. You're meek, pliable, spineless, weak. That's not what it meant 150 years ago or 2,000 years ago. Remember, Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. He didn't mean the weak and the spineless and the pliable. The word meek meant the compassionate, the gentle, the kind, the patient. To be meek, you had to be strong, compassionate, kind, gentle. For Philip Brooks, the meek will will receive the Christ child. Ah, it's those who have a kind, compassionate, loving spirit receive the Christ child. To have a meek spirit, Mary had a meek spirit. You think about it. She wasn't weak and pliable. She was strong. The angel comes and says, Mary, you're going to conceive and bear a son. That was no easy task that was being given to her. She was strong, but she was meek, kind, compassionate, patient. She would be strong. And what I love about Mary, when you think about it, the angel comes and says, Mary, you found favor with God and you're going to conceive and bear a son. Just remember, Mary could have said no. Have you ever thought about that? She could have said You know, I really appreciate the offer, but I don't think I'm in for this one. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but man, that's really going to be a tough gig. I I really don't think that I'm up for this one, so thank you for asking, but I'm just going to pass this time. That's not what Mary said. Mary said, I am a handmaid of the Lord. Let it be so to me, as you have said. To say yes. Yes, to experience that gift of God's love. Yes, to be the one who is now going to share that God's love. I think what you're going to find is when you really believe that you have found favor with God, when you experience that presence of Christ, that love, you're going to want to share that love with others. That's what happens to us. We become the people who love. And when you're loving, instead of being angry, and bitter over what has happened, you'll rewrite the end of your story. 
It's God's grace that helps you rewrite the end of your story. Rather than being bitter and angry, when you feel loved and you choose to love. I love Robert Fulgham. He's such a wonderful author. Doesn't write new books anymore, but he wrote so many and they're still worthy going back to read. And one of the stories I remember was when he had the opportunity to go to the island of Crete and there he was going to study with Dr. Alexandro um, Papandreos. Alexandro Papandreos, he was a professor, a theologian. He had grown up on the island of Crete and he created an academy right next door to the um, Orthodox Church. It became very famous as he wanted to deal with the pursuit of peace, reconciliation, and forgiveness. You see, he had grown up on the island of Crete and it was in World War II. The German paratroopers landed on that island. And on the island of Crete, there was a small group of people who were the resistance fighters. And when the paratroopers landed, this little village came out to fight against them. They had hoes and shovels. The paratroopers had guns. And when they became established, they went to the village, they rounded up all the people, and they shot them all. And there in Crete, you will find high up on a hill, a cemetery with a big iron cross for the Germans that were killed in the fighting. And you will find a cemetery higher with a big cross for all the Cretans who were killed. And it was arranged in such a way that it would remind the people to hate the Germans. But Papandreos, where he grew up as a kid, he was a courier. He even got thrown into jail. He suffered for what he did, but when war was over, he knew already we're going to have to find a way to forgive, to be reconciled, or what will be the end of the story. So he decided to study and learn, and he created this academy. He started inviting Germans and Cretans together to be able to visit, to study, to talk, to get to know one another. Then people started coming from around the world. It was a very powerful experiment. And then Robert Fulgham had the opportunity to go, to be there for two weeks, to sit at the feet of the master. Well, when he went, again, it was just so powerful. There were so many things to think about. It had been two weeks, it just flew by, and then on the last day, Dr. Alexandre Papandreos gave a short lecture, and then he said, are there any questions? And Robert Fulgham said, there was enough questions for a lifetime, all the things he had made us think about. But everybody sat there, nobody said a word. Now, if you've read many of Robert Fulgham's books, you'll know what kind of personality he is. And he talked about when he was in college, and whenever a professor would get through with a lecture, if they would say, are there any questions? And nobody would say a word. He would raise his hand. Yes. Excuse me. Professor, could you explain to us the meaning of life? And he said he'd ask the question and everybody would laugh and they'd close their books and gather up their papers. And the professor would say, class dismissed. Well, here he is sitting with the great Alexandros Papadeos, just having gone through all these lectures. And he says, are there any questions? And Robert can't contain himself. Yes, Dr. Papandreos. Yes. Can you explain the meaning of life? Everybody laughs. They close their books. They start gathering their papers. But Dr. Papandreos just continues to stare at him. He doesn't move. 
finally he says, sit down, sit down. Yes, I can. And he begins to explain. As a boy, growing up there on Crete, one day he came across a German motorcycle that had been in a wreck. It had a mirror that was broken. He wanted to restore the mirror to be whole, but he couldn't find all the pieces. So he took the largest piece he found, and he began to rub it on a rock every day to smooth it out, and he made it into a round circle, a little bit bigger than a quarter. And he said, as a boy, then what I did was I began to play with it. I found it was great fun sitting around, catching the light and casting the light wherever I wanted it to go. I could shine the light under a ledge. I could shine a light in a crevice. Wherever it was dark, I could shine the light. It was so much fun casting light into the darkness. He reached into his pocket and he pulled out the round mirror, carrying it still with him. And then he said, as an adult, I realized this was a metaphor for my life. I realized that I didn't understand the whole scheme of things. I discovered that I was not the light. I was not the source of light. But I discovered I could reflect the light. And my whole life is to catch that light the truth of God's love and who He is and throw it into the darkness, into the dark souls of people who would never see. I can be the mirror that reflects His light. And He took the mirror and caught the light and reflected it onto Robert's face. Class dismissed. To experience the gift that you do not deserve, but you have found favor with God. A baby is born in Bethlehem. It's God's gift to you. And when you know that, you want to share that love for your life to reflect that light. And if you're choosing to live with love and to share that love, you won't let the pain, you won't let the grief be the end of your story. It's God's gift that helps you rewrite the end of the story. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.
Amen.